Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. We come today to the 11th of Christ's messages that are recorded in the Bible. To understand the background of our Lord's words, you should know that since Jesus told his disciples that he was the promised Messiah, the twelve began to dream of the great power and glory that they supposed would come when Christ established his kingdom. Jesus immediately began to work to change his disciples' expectations for what following the Messiah would mean for his followers, but these men did not understand what they were hearing. Thus began an ongoing argument that Jesus' disciples often returned to. Who would be the greatest in Christ's coming kingdom? While such a discussion might seem childish to us now, this dispute could have easily divided the group. One only has to look through history to see how many times strong leaders divided or close friends became bitter enemies due to the prideful pursuit of personal power and glory. How will Christ address this problem? His words are preserved for us in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 33 through 50. Our pastor is entitled this message, Jesus Deals with Pride and Offenses. Great to be with you again on the Beacon of Hope broadcast. We're coming to the 11th message that Jesus preached during his earthly ministry. If you're following along, you could turn with me to Mark chapter 9, and we're starting at verse 33 and going down to verse 50. And before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to study your word and be able to proclaim your word. And Lord, we pray for each person that is listening that you might give them a special blessing for listening. Lord, may you teach all of us through your word today. And we just rejoice that we can have it in front of us. And we ask for your help and guidance through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a bit of trivia for you history buffs. I'm going to read a log. It's kind of a longer quote, but if you can tell me, uh, see if you can tell me who actually spoke this. So this is a person speaking about um, our country. He said, We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Well, that was spoken by former President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, in a, actually, it was a, a written document called The Proclamation of a, National, a Day of National Humiliation, Fasting, and Prayer in 1863. And, uh, boy, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, when you think that uh, some would say our, our country doesn't have a Christian heritage. Here's one of our uh, greatest presidents by almost anyone's account and uh, talking about how we need to repent and turn back to God. Um, today, we, as we're coming to this 11th message in, in, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, as you work through this passage, you're going to find that the disciples have been arguing on a subject that they will, uh, they will struggle with and argue about actually up until the very night of Jesus' betrayal and uh, crucifixion the next day, and that would be the issue of who would be greatest in the kingdom 
of heaven. Remember that Jesus had told them that he was um, he was he was the Messiah, and their thought process automatically takes them to uh, uh, a number of conclusions that they would have drawn, expecting the kingdom to come um, really uh, during their lifetime, and hopefully very soon. And so uh, they're almost in in a sense carving up in their minds, you know, who's going to have what position. And so uh, what this passage will deal with is is two things, basically. First of all, Christ deals with his disciples' pride, because it is really pride that's driving these arguments. And then also the fact that Christ hates unnecessary offenses. And so that's our subject for today, what Jesus Christ has to say about pride and offenses. Maybe some of you are dealing with uh, relationships that have broken down could be a family relationships, could be a husband and wife, could be a parent and, and child, could be brother and sister, and uh, could be a best friend. And the reality is these things happen. Uh, we don't like them to happen. But a lot of what drives the whole issue of offenses is this issue of our personal pride and unwillingness to, to repent when we do wrong. And so this is a very important subject that we need to know what Christ has to say about it. And so let's start out by looking at verse 33, and I'll read uh, verse 33 and 34 to get us moving. Then he came, and he is Jesus there. Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They really didn't want to admit what they were talking about. Pride's an awful thing, and it can be very destructive. And it was really driving these disciples um, in their arguments as to who would be the greatest. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia, And because of that collision, hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into those icy waters. News of the disaster was further um, uh, really um, darkened, and and people got very much angry about what happened because the accident was not the result of a technology problem like radar uh, malfunction or even a thick fog. The cause was human pride. It was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Either could have steered clear, but according to the news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. And before they would um, humble themselves, uh, it was too late before they uh, collided because neither one of them were willing to humble himself and move aside. And of course, the result was hundreds of deaths. A pride often leads to disputes and arguments. And you see that here as the disciples have been disputing along the road and were ashamed of it. They didn't want to tell Jesus what they had been up to. The question of who's the greatest in the kingdom, pride does a couple things to us when it, when it leads us into disputes. First of all, it blinds you to uh, your ignorance. Um, we don't know everything. None of us do. And often when we're confronted with some information or a viewpoint that we don't like, uh, in pride, if we don't want to look foolish in our minds or we don't want to look like we're learning from somebody else, sometimes uh, people will get very offended uh, because someone else gives them a different thought. Well, these men thought that they understood God's plan for the future. 
as uh, again we mentioned just a moment ago, their ideas of what was about to happen, since Jesus is in fact the Messiah, was that Jesus should soon reign as King of Israel, overthrow the tyranny of the Roman Empire, and eventually bring in a worldwide kingdom of God and peace on earth. And God's actual plan for Christ to be crucified was a universe apart from what they were thinking. But in their pride, they didn't understand their ignorance. They didn't, they, they didn't see a different way. Jesus had begun to tell them already, fellas, it's not going to be the way you think. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead. But uh, if you remember, Peter rebuked Jesus about that. Oh, this is never going to happen to you. He was too proud to see his ignorance. And the others were, were right, right there with him. It not only blinds you to to your ignorance, but it blinds you to your need as a sinner before God. The disciples had a problem that many folks have today, and that is they saw no need for Jesus to die for them. After all, they were personally handpicked by Christ himself. They had forsaken friends and family to follow the Lord. They were even given powers to do miracles by Jesus. Yet, they were not all true believers. We recall that Judas is one of these 12 men. So as far as the disciples were concerned, they were good people who were loyal to Jesus as their Messiah. They were his closest followers. They were true believers in the, in the God of the Bible. And, and though they would have agreed that they still sinned from time to time, they fully expected that God would somehow just dismiss their sins and that they would be fine when they met God. You see, we often measure our goodness in comparison to each other. The thought for some is, if if I'm better than most, then God should be good with that. After all, we're we're we're, we're uh, you know none of us is perfect, and and God isn't going to throw us all into hell. So so certainly God's going to be good I, with, with as long as I'm not too too bad. Maybe you uh, uh, do this too. Maybe maybe you look at a few people around you. And hopefully you're right. You pick out the ones uh, who have quite a bit of failings and and you say to yourself, well, I'm pretty good, you know, compared to uh, Joe across the street, my neighbor, or compared to to Bill, my cousin, you know, I'm I'm better than them. Uh, So I I, I may have my own sins, my own bad habits, but I'm pretty confident that that I'm good enough to get into heaven. Well, the scriptures specifically address this type of mindset. A couple different passages I'll give to you. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. The latter part of the verse says this, But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. To compare yourself to a fellow human being is not the, the proper comparison. So is your tendency to measure how good you are by comparing yourself to those around you? God tells you it's not wise to do that. The same thought process is mentioned in more detail in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, and listen as I read them. Paul writes, For I bear bear, bear them witness, these are very religious people, I bear them witness, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Let me break down what he's saying. He is saying, and he's talking about very religious people like himself before his conversion. He's saying that they're actually ignorant of how holy and how righteous God really is. You know, we say, well, he's perfect. He, he never sins and all of that. But we really ultimately feel 
that well, God's going to overlook a few sins. God's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. And yes, he is. But he also does not compromise his holiness one iota when he saves a man. So how does he how does he hang on to both? How does God hang on to the perfection of his of his commandments and still forgive us? Well, we're ignorant of how righteous God is, and we also, as as we're pointed out here, we seek to establish our own righteousness. I want to think of myself as a good person. I want to think of myself as as you know, if you ask me, are you a good person? I'd like to say, well, yes, I am. But the scriptures say differently. God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and it's worse than that. God says that that uh, all our righteousnesses, that's the best things we could do, are as filthy rags. That's and and those filthy rags were 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 uh, in in that era in that in that time period were rags that a leper would wear and wipe his sores on them. That's how disgusting they would be. And what God is saying is the best you can do is is disgusting in my sight. It's not even close. So seeking to be righteous on my own, establishing my own righteousness, is is clearly taught against in the scripture. And by the way, I, I was quoting out of Isaiah, an Old Testament passage, chapter 64 and verse 6. So what happens is when I try to make myself, I try to believe myself to be righteous and, and try to act like I'm the righteous one, and I'm good enough to get to heaven, then what, what I'm doing is I'm not actually submitting to the righteousness of God. God is saying to us, you can't earn heaven. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how many times you confess your sins. It's not good enough to get into heaven. It is faith in what Jesus did for you, not faith in yourself, not faith in your prayer life, not faith in how many times you read the Bible through. It is faith in what God did for you when Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And remember that God is speaking in this passage to very religious people. They zealously were at work at their religious practices and habits. Maybe you pray several times a day and and, and you try to help your neighbor from time to time. Maybe you attend your house of worship on, on a regular basis, a daily or weekly basis, and you would not dream of missing a service. All your friends tell you you are a wonderful person. Yet let me remind you that God's holy standards of righteousness are not based on your friend's opinion or how well you stack up against the people around you. The standard you are to live up to is that which is demonstrated by God's Son himself, Jesus Christ. Now, would you be honest with yourself for a moment? Forget about all what other people say about you and compare yourself to God's Son. That's a pretty scary proposition, isn't it? Do you speak to others? both happy things and joyful things, as well as difficult things, like Jesus would have done? Do you treat your husband, your wife, your children, your parents at all times as Jesus did and as he would do? I remember going um, into the old jail in Scranton uh, before they built the new one, so it's been a number of years. I had a relative in there who was uh, in for uh, something drug-related, and so I was going in to visit him and to read some scripture and to pray with him. And while I was in prison, um, um, at that same time, there had been a brutal murder down at um, Lake Scranton. And a young girl, I, I don't even think, I'm not even sure she was a teenager, was uh, brutally attacked and murdered. The, the man that was accused of that crime was in 
the Scranton jail the same time that my relative was in there. And it was interesting um, talking to him about that. My my relative told me that um, that the man who was a, a, accused of, of this a terrible crime was actually in solitary confinement, not because of anything that he had necessarily done since he, get, since he had gotten there, but because they were afraid of what the prisoners would do to him if they had the chance. They would have killed him. Yet these prisoners, who were more than happy to, uh, to, to kill this man who'd done such a brutal crime, what had they done? Well, I'm sure some of them were drug abusers. Others may have been uh, people that sold drugs and actually were involved in destroying people's lives through that medium. Some may have been rapists or thieves. And 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 so what what holy stand compared to the man that that uh that mur- brutally murdered this girl, maybe maybe they felt that they were better than him, but that's not the standard. So I walked in there as the preacher. I I'm a preacher of the gospel. Compared to all the prisoners there, at least in my mind, I should have come out pretty well. I, I'm, I'm, I'm what I would think better than they are. But if I compare my life to the holy standard of Jesus, it's not even close. I'm not even in the ballpark. It's sort of like this. If you can think of of the the gap between the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we're supposed to be living up to, that's the standard. And our own righteousness, that's like a gap across the Grand Canyon. And let's say that, that you and I and hundreds of others are standing on the, um, we'll be on the, the south rim of the, of the Grand Canyon. And at certain places, it's about a mile across there, maybe, maybe even more in some spots. I'm not exactly sure of the statistics there. We're standing and we're looking across and, and we're at one of those sheer cliffs that just drops off for hundreds of feet. And each one of us have our chance to jump across from the south rim to the north rim, that mile across jump. And we're maybe someone's standing there and they're, and they're taking statistics. Well, that guy only got you know five foot off the cliff. Of course, he drops hundreds of feet to his death. Here's another guy. Oh, he got 15 feet out. That's not too bad. Oh, here's another guy. He's 25. He actually made 25 feet out. Here's another guy. Sets the all-time record so far. He's 100 feet out across the canyon before he falls down the ravine. They're, but they're all dead. And that's when we compare ourselves to each other. Well, I may have jumped 100 feet across the canyon, but the reality is I, I got nowhere near the other side. And the problem that many have who are religious today and church-going people is they're comparing themselves to each other. And they're not comparing themselves to God's holy standard. And to be honest with you, it is a thing of pride and it's exactly what the, why these disciples are thinking, why, why would Jesus talk about dying? He's not going to die. He doesn't need to die. They have no clue of the, the, the essential death of Christ for sin. So when God sent his son to earth, Jesus came to deal with your greatest enemy and mine too. And it wasn't the Roman Empire. It wasn't any other empire. It wasn't, wasn't any other country that would come, come across our path. It wasn't even Satan that Jesus was primarily, as bad as Satan is, that he was primarily dealing with. The, the, the greatest problem that you and I have that keeps us out of fellowship with God and keeps us out of God's heaven is our sin. 
Imagine trying to go to heaven as you are now. Matter of fact, a number of years ago, a pastor, a friend of mine, was speaking at a gospel mission out in Ohio. And he asked the the men of the mission, and again, many of these have broken lives, and, and they're, they're there because of that. He asked them, how many of you want to go to heaven? Everybody raised their hand. And then the, the preacher said something pretty unique. He said, no, you don't. He said, you don't want to go to heaven. He says, they're always singing up there, praises to God. It's, it's one big worship service. You know, you, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't... You can't curse. You can't do all these things that you like to do. So he said, well, why do you really think you want to go to heaven? One guy raised his hand. He said, because we don't want the alternative. And i that's the exact truth. But the reality is there's not one of us that's going to be in heaven one day and say, well, you know, can I just tell this joke? It's a little off color. It's not going to work that way. We've got to be perfect. Imagine the depth of sins that have been committed against God, and what Jesus had to go through to pay for those sins. That's what the cross is all about. That's what these disciples are not seeing. They're blinded to their need, their spiritual need. And I just wonder if I'm talking to someone today that's blinded to your own spiritual need. You've been very religious, maybe. Maybe you've gone to church all your life, but you've always thought you were good enough. Just think about this for a moment. Think about how many sins have been committed and will be committed before this 24-hour day is done. Just this one day. How many times will God's name be blasphemed? People taking God's name in vain, whether it be on entertainment, or maybe just, uh, just just people talking. And oh my, and they put God's name in there. Or they, or they use uh, Jesus' name as, a, as, a, as a, 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 a word of frustration. How many times will God's name be blasphemed just today on this planet? How many curse words will be spoken beyond just what God's uh, uh, name being taken away? Just, just, just dirty language. How many t- cruel things will be said? So let's take another area of our speech. How many, how many mean, uh, just, just nasty things will be said? Think about the political arena alone, let alone what people say to each other at work, even worse, what people say to each other at home. How many lies will be told today? How many acts of violence will be committed just in this day? How many sexual sins will be committed against God in this day? How many evil thoughts will be entertained today? How many thefts and scams will be uh, 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 successful or at least attempted today? How many acts of violence, even murder, will happen on just this one day on the planet? And when Jesus is going to the cross... He is going there to die for every sin committed on the planet. Do you understand now why when he comes and begins to focus on what's ahead of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood? It's it's something that happens on only very, very rare occasions when a person is under extreme stress, that their pores actually will sweat blood. Very unusual. Jesus experienced that in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's looking forward to what he was going to face. It wasn't the torture that the Romans would do to him or that the the Sanhedrin would do to him. That wasn't it. It was it was the fact that he was going to bear the wrath of Almighty God against the sins that had been committed on this planet from the beginning of time to the end. He was going to suffer that for you and for me. All of that to put away 
not just the sins of the world, make it personal now. What did he have to bear for you? What sins have you committed against God that the only way for you to be rescued from your sin was for Jesus to go there and to pay that penalty for sin for you? And don't merely think of the physical aspect of his crucifixion. That, that is the tip of the iceberg. Think of the fact that the wrath of God was poured out on his son. My hell, your hell, he took it for you and for me. What I would have had to endure for eternity, he suffered for me, and he did the same for you. That's why when Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's the kind of depth of love we're talking about. He did this to save you and to save me. So when the disciples are arguing about who is going to be the most uh, have the most power and fame in Christ's coming kingdom, their pride was blinding them to their own desperate spiritual need. Sort of like a young woman who asked for an appointment with her pastor to talk with him about what she thought of as a besetting sin in her life. Well, when she got to the appointment, she said, Pastor, I become aware of a sin in my life which I cannot control. Every time I'm at church, I begin to look around at the other women, and I realize that I am the prettiest one in the whole congregation. None of the others can compare with my beauty, and I feel so vain about that. What can I do about this sin? Well, the pastor looked kind of shocked, and he said, Mary, I don't think we're talking about the fact of a sin. He said, I think you're just making a major mistake. See, Mary evidently was, was uh, her pride was blinding her to how good-looking she really thought she was. Pride blinds us to a lot of things. You handle it if you were in Jesus' shoes and you had these disciples who are supposed to be your best and lo- most loyal followers who are just thinking about themselves at this point and not really thinking about eternal spiritual issues that are the, the vital concern that we all should have. Well, it's amazing to me to see how our Lord handled this. Uh, It's so much better than what I would have done if I was in his spot. Uh, He lays out two keys to being exalted in his kingdom as he gently rebukes them for their pride and their selfishness. Um, It's found in verse 35, and uh, I'll keep reading down to verse 37. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What Jesus is is going to deal with them on, the, the two keys to being exalted in his kingdom are, first of all, a selfless attitude. And then secondly, selfless service. Now, when I say selfless, don't think of unselfish where, okay, I want this biggest piece of cake and I give it to someone else. And that's a, that's a good attitude and that's a good spirit. But selflessness is not even thinking about yourself. It's making the cake for your friend without even thinking about having a piece. You're just, you're just wrapped up in, in them, in being a blessing to them. It was rather interesting. There's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, about uh, some people that were captured by the Persians. 
and I, I believe it was the Persian king. He's standing uh, there and and basically kind of trying to make up his mind what to do with the um, is a man and his his wife and uh, like a mother or mother-in-law. Probably going to save the women and and children. Not not certain about that. And the man stood up and very bravely told the Persian king that he would die uh, in order that his wife uh, and uh, mother-in-law would be preserved. And um, the the Persian king, as the story goes, was so uh, impressed by the man's bravery and his uh, selflessness that he he said, "I'll I'll let you I'll let you all go." Well, after that, of course, terrifying, and then um, uh, at the same time, wonderful event as as their lives are preserved. Uh, the the mother says to her daughter, "Did you see how glorious the Persian king was dressed and the expensive uh, garments that he had on, and and how majestic he looked up there on his throne?" And the wife said that quite honestly, she said, "I didn't notice him at all." I was just so enraptured with how much love my husband had toward me. Uh, I just was staring at him. And you know, that's a wonderful spirit when when Christian people get wrapped up in their Lord and in his work and pleasing him. And we just forget about self. It's, it's, it's something that we don't do naturally. It's something that only the Lord can help us do. An example of in Scripture of this would be when Paul and Silas uh, the first um, uh, on their missionary journey, they were in Acts chapter 16, and for preaching the gospel, they were arrested and they were thrown in prison, beaten. Before that happened, what did Paul and Silas do while they're in jail? Well, they're singing, and here they are beaten. They their their backs are probably bloodied. Uh, they're actually put in stocks. They were thrown in the worst spot of the prison, and yet they're singing. Why? They're because. It wasn't about them. It was about the Lord Jesus. And and they were arrested for preaching the gospel, but ultimately the, the thing that, that really touched that whole situation off was the fact that Paul had delivered a young woman from demon possession. And she was a soothsayer, a fortune teller, no longer had that ability, and so her handlers, who didn't care about the girl, they're the ones that had Paul and Silas arrested. So they're 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 not even thinking about you know, boy, this is a bad treatment that we're getting, and we deserve better. Not at all. They're they're praising God for the privilege of serving Him. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is talking about a selfless attitude where, where you don't you like that little child. You're not even thinking about yourself. And you're in submission to whatever the Lord wants. As that little child is set in front of the disciples and and uh, allows Jesus to pick him up. He's not screaming and kicking and, and, and yelling. You see his submissiveness as Jesus puts him in the middle of those disciples and teaches them a lesson through this little, little one. Uh, the Lord was able to place him wherever he wanted. He was able to pick him up and whenever he wanted to to let the Lord pick you up and put you down wherever and whenever he wants to is a high level of trust and it's a high level of selflessness. Now Jesus not only challenged them to selflessness like that little child but also selfless service. Let me read again verse 37. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. If someone were known to be rich and generous, let's suppose that there was a queen of some small European country, and somehow she got your name and she asked you to help her with a detail about an upcoming trip to the United States. Maybe it was she needed you to show her around northeastern Pennsylvania or to uh, explain something maybe of, of local history to her or whatever it is. Uh, would you not be happy to help this woman? I, I think most of us would. Why? Not only would it be interesting to help a famous person, but maybe, just maybe, she might reward you, give you something nice in return, maybe a, uh, some expensive gift or a rare thing or maybe a uh, whatever. But how motivated are we to help the unlovely or the weak or the poor? Do we jump to help the child who can give nothing back to us? A number of years ago, back probably when I was a teenager and even before that, many churches were involved in um, bus, what we called bus ministry back then. And it, what it was, and maybe some of you remember these days, they, they would go out uh, with a, uh, on a Saturday typically and invite the children of the community to church. Many of these children did not have parents who attended themselves, and so they really had no way to come. And I was involved in this, actually, as a as not only a, a teenager, but then a young adult. So what would you do? Well, that's where the churches would purchase buses, um, used buses that were uh, done with that the public school system or whatever group that had them was, was done with, and we'd purchase them for a, a fairly reasonable amount. And then we would go out and use those buses to, to uh, pick up the children and bring them to church. And I know that over the years that... that um, uh, many children came, and, and some of those children were truly born again. Others uh, heard the message and enjoyed the time in church, but never really did anything with it. But many churches uh, eventually dropped what would be called their bus ministry to children. And you know why? What, what many times was the reason? Because it didn't pay. The children didn't um, give a lot of offering. The buses were expensive. And so when churches began to have a little bit of a tight financial problem, that was one of the first things to go was the bus ministry. And, you know, I think in many ways that is sad. Our Lord was about helping not not merely, although he would help certainly the rich and the famous, but he was about helping everyone and, and many times emphasized helping those that were forgotten by everybody else. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was going to a banquet and it says here in verse 12 to 14, Then he, he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Knowing that sometimes we struggle with being motivated to help those who can do nothing for us, Christ gave us these encouragements about helping children. And and don't just think of beautiful, clean, lovely children. Think about the kids that are not as clean and maybe are not uh, don't don't have um, the best behavior when they're around you and are immature and 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 maybe they don't come from a very good home. Does God care about these kids? Well, absolutely. 
And so Jesus gives us a couple encouragements here. First of all, being kind to a child. By the way, it could also be a believer who's not very old in the faith. But being kind to a child specifically for Christ's sake is like being kind to Christ himself. Here's how I put it. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. If you're doing it for me and you're receiving a child for me, then it's like receiving me yourself, he's saying. It's like inviting me into your home or into your church. And then being kind uh, to Christ is by, like being kind to God the Father because he goes on and says, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now that's God the Father. This is how wonderful and how privileged it is to be able to help those who are less fortunate than we are. And specifically, children who, who need to be taught the truth of God's word and need to understand who the Lord is before many times the, the sins and distractions that can come into their lives um, take them away from faith in the Lord. It's a privilege to serve people who cannot repay you. In many ways, when we give to missions, um, we, we are giving to help missionaries reach people we do not even know and who basically have no way of ever paying us back. So our God says, I will pay you back, and I will reward you at the best possible time, not here on earth, but when you stand before me and are judged by me. Can I tell you that God often gives way beyond what he agrees to, by the way? Let me show you Proverbs 19 and verse 17. Here's what it says. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. When it says he will pay back what he's given... It's not talking about the poor paying you back. It's talking about God himself paying you back. God says if you look after the poor, and and may I say we're not just merely talking about, although this could involve it, food and shelter and trying to help people who are in need. But this goes beyond that into uh, being a blessing to uh, children who can never repay you and teaching them about the Lord and helping people from all walks of life, to find Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In Psalm 41, we have another very encouraging section on this idea about helping the poor. It says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. And by the way, the word poor has the idea of being helpless or powerless. The Lord will deliver him in times of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. Isn't that interesting? God is saying even when a person is on their sickbed, if they have been generous because of their love for me and have tried to bless those who are less fortunate, I'm going to keep that in mind. Have you ever thought about praying that God would bless someone who is a blessing to you? I've, I've many times have done that since I've seen verses like this. I remember in one particular case, we were working on our uh, building project, building a, a family center, and we had an individual in our area who was very good to us and helped us out um, doing work for us for, for nothing. And um, shortly after our project was done, I'm trying to think of that. I'm not sure exactly the timing, but it was right around that time. That same individual who I'd been praying God would bless him, his wife came down with a very serious illness. And I asked the Lord if it would please him to bless this man and his wife that God might restore her to health because of the man's kindness toward us. 
And you know, it was it was wonderful. The Lord answered that prayer. And that woman is doing well today. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, how God uh, says here, I'll make your bed in sickness when you care about those uh, who are needy around you. And that man was very kind to us. And we I felt like we should pray that God would bless him back. Now, uh, so the Lord isn't coming out here and just blasting on his disciples for their selfishness. He is trying to give them a good example of a child and how this child isn't thinking about himself. He's letting the Lord do what he wants to with him. And that's how we need to be. But now we, we come to that second side of this of this uh, message, and that is Christ showing how he hates unnecessary offenses. The times when we are offensive and and um, it doesn't need to happen. And there's, there are issues that come between people. It starts in verse 38. Now Jesus answered him saying, excuse me, now John answered him, answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, um, we have three different types of offenses that Jesus is going to deal with here. The first one is an offense toward one of God's servants. And this is what the disciples had actually done. They had found a man who wasn't one of Jesus' exact followers. He wasn't like following him physically like the other disciples were. But he did believe in the Lord. And so he was actually casting out demons using Jesus' name to do it. So he's obviously um, a, a follower, though he's not physically following the Lord. He is, he's trying to follow the Christ and his teachings. And yet the disciples, um, they, they stepped in and they tried to, to hinder him. They tried to say, stop doing it. You're not actually following us. Now, I think this man was a genuine believer. He's, he, he's using Jesus' name. He's casting out demons uh, in, 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 by using Jesus' name. So why did the disciples oppose him? Well, it's because he was not among those who were directly following Jesus like they were. So the issue is the disciples did not claim that the man refused to be a follower of Jesus. He probably was. What was their criticism? He does not follow us. Many times, even in, in Christian circles, we're so concerned about our little kingdom, my specific church, how I look, how our church looks, instead of worrying about the gospel going forward. And there will be people who don't see thing, everything the same as you, but they are truly followers of Jesus. They are accepting Christ by faith. They, they realize he's the Son of God. They believe that he died on the cross for their sins, that he rose from the dead bodily the th- third day. They are putting their faith in Christ, but they don't do everything exactly the way you do them. And one of the things we don't want to do is needlessly offend somebody who truly is a follower of Jesus, who's one of his servants. But we not only can um, offend God's servants, but we can also uh, offend a child. And so he talks about that next, which is obviously very serious. Verse 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones, remember, he just has this child in front of them. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to be offended, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
Wow. That's how serious God is on the issue of offending children. Now, I'd like to give you a couple thoughts on this point. First of all, the child can be physically or mentally or spiritually immature. He could be a child in the faith. The Bible talks about a a child in the faith. The idea is he's not very old in, in his walk with God, and he doesn't know a whole lot. And sometimes people come in and take a, a new believer, and they lead him the wrong direction. He could be mentally um, immature, where uh, maybe he's older, but he doesn't have the maturity that you would expect out of that age, and then people take advantage of, of, of him or her. And or obviously, it could be a child like Jesus is, is showing at that moment, who is just physically and, and age-wise immature. In any case, Jesus is saying, don't offend. Don't cause this child to stumble. Don't cause this person to, to go away from me or, or be angry about, about uh, what, what you're, uh, the church and, and about what you're about. The horrific picture that Jesus um, then gives of how serious he is about this is of a man being rowed out in the middle of a lake, a huge stone tied to his neck and thrown overboard. Jesus said, that's how I feel about someone who would offend a child. That's how serious it is. Now, there's a third thing, uh, person we can offend. We can offend somebody who's really trying to serve the Lord, and they just don't do it our way. We can offend a child. We could also offend ourselves. And it's rather interesting. How is it that we can uh, drift from God and even harden our hearts toward God? Well, Jesus gives us some examples of this. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed, lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter uh, the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, certainly you see just by hearing these verses that Jesus believes in a literal hell. He's saying it'd be better to lose your eye or your hand or your foot and to go to heaven one day than to, than to have a, a complete body and die and end up in hell. Now, is he telling us to mutilate ourselves? Absolutely not. Why do we know that? Because self-mutilation doesn't change your heart. You can pluck out your eye, but it wouldn't change the lust in your heart. So Jesus is not telling you to self-mutilate. What he is saying is this. If you had to lose something precious to you in order to come to Christ, by all means, do it. Let me give you some examples. What, What about the hand? Well, the hand symbolizes what we do. And what Jesus is saying, let, let, let nothing that you want to do stand in your way of, of repenting and turning to Christ for eternal life. Um, tragically, there are people that want to hang on to a sinful habit, like drugs or alcohol or, or cigarettes or immoral relationship, and they will not let that go. Jesus said it would be better to lose your hand so you can't hang on to it any longer. Uh, maybe it's an immoral job. Someone's working for organized crime. We had a guy in my dad's church um, uh, in, in Moscow years ago. 
And he told him, I can't get saved yet. He said, I've got to go to court and I have to lie. And he was willing to risk his soul uh, because he felt like he had to lie. He was, uh, there was something, some uh, a crime operation that, that he knew about and he didn't dare tell the truth. Uh, but he was risking, he was risking his eternal soul uh, because of an immoral situation that he was in. Some type of illegal thing. Some people will, will say, well, I, I want my freedom to cheat or to lie or to get, to, to get ahead financially. I, I, I want to put myself first. I know I can't do that as a Christian. Jesus is saying it would be better that you can't hang on to those things, that you lose your hand than to hang on to what you think you want and spend eternity in hell. Uh, what about the foot? Well, it's the places you want to go. Jesus is saying it's better not to be able to go to the bar or the nightclub or the casino where people lose their, their, their morals, where, where a child many times, uh, if he follows in your footsteps, is going to be offended, going to be turned away. It'd be better to lose all that than to have what you want. Better lose your foot so you can't go to those places than to enter into life, uh, in, in, into um, eternal death with a whole body. He said it'd be better to, to lose your eye. What does, what does he mean by that? Some, something that you desire to see. Maybe some form of wicked entertainment. You know, as a Christian, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to view this pornography. But Jesus is saying it'd be better that you didn't have the ability to see. Again, he's not saying pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off. Here's what he's saying. Don't let something you want to do, don't let a place you want to go, don't let something you want to see keep you from eternal life. May God help you to understand how serious the issue of eternal life is. And Christ's conclusion, verse 49 and 50, for everyone will be seasoned with with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Don't let your pride cause unnecessary offenses. And please don't turn others away from Christ because of some prideful reaction. And if you have not received Christ, let nothing stand in your way. Jesus is saying, turn to him before it is too late. Sup by giving you three conclusions from this message of Jesus and a couple ways to apply it. First of all, uh, even the most noble deeds and causes can be corrupted by your own pride and self-centeredness. And you think of these disciples. Here they are. They're in the, one of the most noble of all things they could do. They were following the Lord and trying to help him along in his ministry. Um, and it's a great thing to say, you know, we all need to be less proud and selfish. But the reality is it's pretty difficult sin to conquer. And it can get in any circle. It can get among any group of people. And so um, we just have to be aware of this all the time, of our own personal pride and selfishness that, that can really corrupt things. Secondly, pride causes offenses, and those offenses are serious. So serious that Jesus says it would be better for you to have a large stone tied around your neck and be drowned in the sea than to stand before God with the sin of turning a child away from the faith. Now just think about that. Ways we can do it? Well, what about a a person that is teaching a child, maybe in a school situation, that God didn't really create you, that you're just an accident, um, and steals that child's faith. You think that's serious to God? How about an, an adult that is introducing a child to pornography or um, a, a child abuser? What about an, an adult who is um, introducing a, a child to alcohol or some other type of sin that could bind him or her the rest of that person's life? 
Uh, these are serious things, and these are things that that uh, that we have to be aware of. What about the person in church who is uh, gossiping in front of children or showing a, a a negative attitude toward kids and acting like they don't even want the children around? I taught school for many years, for eleven years, in fact, and and was involved also in coaching at the same time, many of those years as well. And there's many opportunities to minister to kids, but there's also uh, uh, potential pitfalls of not treating them with the respect that they need, and that um, that as a as a person created in the image of God, that they deserve from me. And so pride can cause offenses, and those offenses are very serious. And then thirdly, your sin not only can cause others to stumble from the faith, but it can cost you your own soul as well. And so Jesus' uh, uh, admonition to set aside whatever you have. Again, he's not talking about self-mutilation, but he's saying set aside whatever it is, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to see. Don't let any of that stand before uh, and in between you and the Savior. So if you're not, if you're here without Christ, don't let anything or anyone stand between you and salvation. And salvation is Jesus Christ. If you are a believer and you're hearing this message, remember that most of these men that Jesus was warning here were loyal followers. And even true Christians can push others away from Christ. And this angers God greatly. So pray and ask God to keep you from pushing people from the Savior. May the Lord bless you, and I pray that you'll take these truths to heart. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Pastor Jones began the study of the messages of Christ in our church about two years ago. So if you would like to see the original video sermons of this ongoing series, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. Under the video tab, there's a separate playlist for the Messages of Christ series. If you know someone who is shut in and unable to attend church in person, we live stream our service weekly. Next week, you can look for that service to be streaming at approximately 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. We also have some exciting news. As of this Sunday, we have reopened our Sunday school ministry with classes for all ages. Sunday school starts at 9 a.m., so if you're in the area, feel free to stop in for a visit. Our morning service is due to start at 10 a.m. each week, so if you wish, you can log into our Facebook page right about now and live stream our normal worship service. If you live anywhere close to us, we would invite you to come and see us. If you have no idea where Calkins is, our church is located about 10 minutes from Beach Lake, about 20 minutes from Honesdale, and about 10 minutes from Narrowsburg, New York. If you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page. Just look for a radio bold icon on our feed. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world. Jesus Christ's blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.